My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. Then you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. As some of you know, I have an undergraduate degree in aerospace engineering. I picked that degree course in high school for two rather pragmatic reasons. First, I was good in math and science, and second, I had a lifelong love for airplanes and rockets. I, my dad was an airline pilot. He had been in the Air Force. I grew up kind of learning to read, basically, uh, by reading uh, magazines he'd have laying around, like Aviation Week and Space Technology. Found them interesting. In particular, you know, growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, I was particularly enamored with the space shuttle. If you grew up during that time, then you know that space shuttle, I mean, that was must-see TV whenever they would have a launch. And I was glued every time they had a launch. I was, watch, I was right, right there watching it. I was just amazed by it. I mean, just seeing it sitting on the launch pad was just brought chills to me. And I began to look into it and to study things about it, you know, things that fascinated me, like the fact that the shuttle itself had over a million parts that all had to work together in harmony. And the engineers, when they designed it, their, their error, the tolerance, you know, the, the errors that they could allow, they were measured down to in micrometers, as in one one millionth of a meter. And as we learned, sadly, from two horrible shuttle tragedies, even one small error in one small part could have significant consequences. And when you think about it, that kind of precision was required while at liftoff, the rocket boosters provided 7 million pounds of thrust, the equivalent of 100 airliners, all at the same time. And right before liftoff, there was so much power being pushed that the shuttle itself would expand over a foot in all directions. It's just amazing to think about how it even stayed together with that amount of force applied was amazing. And then slowly that shuttle would leave the launch paths and gain speed. And then you have that majestic arc through the sky as that shuttle traveled from zero miles an hour to over 17,000 miles an hour in just a few minutes. Simply stunning. It's a testament to human ingenuity 
intelligence, and creativity. And yet, as wonderful as that shuttle was, when astronauts got to space, the technical marvel that got them there paled in comparison to what they found when they arrived. There's just something that nothing seems to adequately prepare a person for the stunning wonder of the heavens after escaping the Earth's atmosphere. Astronauts describe feeling minute in the face of eternity. For all the wonder of what it took to propel them out of the Earth's atmosphere, in some way it was kind of like a flea going wee as it jumps a centimeter on the back of a, of a mighty elephant. As the space shuttle launch illustrated, something about humans is wondrous, amazing. And yet at the same time, in the scope of the universe, we are tiny and frail. If you pause long enough, you'll notice this, this, this tension between these two things inside of you, inside of me. This tension between greatness and insignificance. You feel it when you're going to scroll through your news feed if you pay attention. Like you'll see a headline on the one hand of, of a technical marvel or a creativity or, or people working together to accomplish something amazing, followed immediately by a, by a headline of human weakness and frailty in the face of natural forces. We feel it when we look at our own lives as well. My first job out of college was with the Boeing Airplane Company up in Seattle. I wrote software programs for full cockpit simulators in the development of a new airplane at the time. It was called the 777. Maybe you've flown on one of those. Specifically, my job was to integrate the software that was written by over 50 engineers. They had all the different parts. I would integrate those into the airplane simulation. I would run it through a bunch of tests. You know, you have all the problems you have to work through to make sure it matched the performance. And then I would take it into the simulator and I would fly it around to make sure everything worked properly. Then airlines or pilots from the airlines who were going to purchase this airplane, they came in and then they would fly it to make sure it flew the way they wanted it to. In other words, my job was important, and it had a lot of pressure to succeed. Uh, I mean, there's there are people relying on me, and yet, and yet, I was one of over 300,000 employees at the Boeing Airplane Company at that time. I was one of over 25,000 engineers just working on the 777 airplane, much less every other airplane that Boeing was working on at the time. And 25,000, that was just the engineers, much less all the other employees, right? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, if I had died on the way to work, would they have missed me? I mean, would that program have even paused for a moment? Like, I mean, maybe a couple of days if they would have struggled in that particular area. But overall, it didn't matter. So when it came to my work at the Boeing Airplane Company, was I important? Or was I insignificant? And I just want to turn the question to you. Are you important or are you insignificant? When we lean over into too much onto the important side, we'll quickly run into the problems that come from conceited, self-important people. From the, all the way from the horrors of the Holocaust to greed on Wall Street to church splits. But if you lean too far onto the insignificant side of things, it doesn't long, long before you, you reach meaninglessness. 
You reach hopelessness. I mean, does it anything really matter that we do? I mean, does it matter that I'm up here preaching, providing some encouragement to a few hundred people on a Sunday morning in the west side of Portland? I mean, really, in the grand scheme of things? Does it matter? So somehow, the answer to that question, are we important or are we insignificant, needs to be yes to both. And actually, working through the tension between them is part of living a good life. And thankfully, we have some help when it comes to understanding and managing this tension. And it comes to us through a short psalm that we find in our Bibles. If you're reading through the Bible in a year through us as a church, you know that we are in a particular place in time where we've been reading the last few weeks about David, this man called the the man after God's own heart. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to shift into the Psalms, which aren't a part of the history, but they're placed here when we read through the Bible chronologically, because most of those Psalms were written during the period of time around David's time. In fact, David wrote about half of the Psalms. So if you're new to your Bible, you can know that the, the book of Psalms is the worship book of the Bible. And so before I dive into our psalm today, and before you head into the psalms in your reading over the next couple of weeks, I want to take a few moments this morning to share three attributes about the psalms that I think are really important if you want to, as you read them, if you want to gain from them. First, uh, you need to know that the psalms are poetry. So we need to read them like poetry. Now, this can be difficult for us because, number one, we don't get a lot of training in reading poetry. And just as culturally speaking, we don't value poetry all that much. We value clarity and certainty. In other words, we, we value science and we, we turn to science in order to find and hear and learn truth. But we miss out on the goodness of the Psalms when we take a scientific approach to it. And that's often what is done, you know, where you need to unpack the, the, the psalm in order, to, in order to get principles out of it that are useful to us. It's not the way you read the psalms. In fact, I think you wreck the psalms if you approach them that way. Now, please hear me. So the psalms do communicate truth, but they communicate it differently. The psalms are designed to be felt rather than analyzed. To be felt rather than analyzed. And they teach truth indirectly rather than directly. They use imagery rather than fact statements. And so as we read the Psalms, what we're, what, what's happening is we are invited to bring our whole selves into the worship of God and not merely our minds, okay? So the Psalms are poetry. The second thing we need to know is that the Psalms are relational. They communicate relational knowledge more than informational knowledge. That may be a distinction you've not heard before. Relational knowledge rather than merely informational knowledge. Now be sure that relational knowledge includes information, absolutely, but it's so much more than that. There's more to knowledge than merely what we can learn informationally. There's what we might call visceral or non-cognitive, to borrow some words there, kinds of knowledge that you learn through your emotions, through your senses, through your intuition. For example, if I tell you that I know my wife, for sure I know some facts about her. I can tell you her birthday, her her hair color, her eye color. I can tell you aspects of her personality, that she's well-organized and pays attention to detail. But those are not the most important things that I know about her. I, I, I know what makes her laugh and what makes her cry. 
I know how she experiences hurt and what she pref- how she likes to be soothed and comforted. I know her deepest fears and her greatest dreams. Now that's the more important knowledge that's gained. And how did I gain that knowledge? By living in a relationship with her for over 32 years. It's similar with God. He wants us to know so much more than just information about him. He wants us to know him relationally. He wants us to be known by him relationally. And the Psalms help us with that. Third thing we need to know about the Psalms is that they are emotional. They are emotional. Just like I got emotional just now talking about my wife. The Psalms are like that. They, they, the emotions are the currency of relationship. I mean, yeah, words are really important, but emotions are actually how we communicate relationally. And that means all of the emotions, even, though the, even those ones that you prefer not to, to have and not to share, you know, anger, fear, jealousy, disappointment, despair, those are really important relationally. And the Psalms have those emotions. And so understanding the emotion of each Psalm is vital to understanding the purpose of the Psalm. And so broadly speaking, just so you know, broadly speaking, you can understand the Psalms as three different types, emotionally speaking. First of all, you have what we might call Psalms of praise. Now, Psalms of praise, they contain the emotions that come when life is going well, when life is as we think it ought to be, when God is (laughs) as we think he ought to be. We experience emotions, right, that go with that joy, exhilaration, and that's the Psalms of praise. We also have the Psalms of Lament. Well, the Psalms of Lament, they, are, they have the emotions that come when life isn't going so well. When, when life, in fact, is turned upside down and we're scrambling around to know what's going on. When God doesn't seem to be cooperating, much less even there at all. Yeah, those are the Psalms of Lament. Then you have the Psalms of Gratitude. Now those come with the emotions that come when you're rescued. And especially when you're rescued and you know you had nothing to do with it. It was sheer gift. Those are the emotions that we find. Each type of psalm invites you to bring your emotional experience to God relationally and with with those emotions as an act of worship. That's what the psalms are inviting you to do. So what I want to do is invite you to keep those three things in mind as you read a lot of psalms over the next couple of weeks. And with the time that I have left to today, I want to dive into one particular psalm. It's one of my favorites It's a psalm of David. It's Psalm 8. Psalm 8. So if you haven't already turned there in your Bibles, I invite you to do so. Of course, we'll have the verses up on the screen as well. Now, Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. It has the distinction of being the first psalm of praise that you encounter when you read through the Bible or when you read through the Psalms. The psalm, this Psalm 8, is especially refreshing when you read it consecutively after the previous five psalms, all of which are psalms of lament. After, you know, Psalm 3 expresses loneliness. Psalm 4 expresses distress. Psalm 5, disgust. Psalm 6, despair. Psalm 7, injustice. After reading those five psalms, you arrive at the first verse of Psalm 8, and you're fully aware of the difficulty and the pain of the human experience. Now, interestingly, those previous five psalms they envision or image God in earthly terms. 
In other words, if you were reading those poems and you didn't know they came from the Bible and you didn't know who this character God was, he could be an, an earthly ruler of some kind and, and the people are bringing their pleas, their hopes to him or an earthly judge and people are crying out to him for justice. Now, such a lead-in makes the opening verse of Psalm 8 all the more striking. It's like you spent you know, the hours it takes to arduously climb up the, to the top of Mount Hood. And then you get to the top of Mount Hood and you look out and you see this vast panorama of beauty and wonder. And you cannot help but exclaim, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Psalm 8 begins with that exclamation. David is filled with delight as he thinks on God's greatness. He then adds something even more marvelous. Your glory is higher than the heavens. In other words, as vast as the universe is, God's glory is greater. In the next verse, verse 3, he draws our attention to the spectacular bodies in space, the moon and the stars, and, and then he marvels how they were set in place by God. Notice he uses personal pronouns, your fingers, you set, to illustrate that all exi that exists belongs to the Lord. The vast universe is but child's play to our God, to the divine creator, spun off the tips of his fingers without breaking a sweat. Now, let's pause for a moment and consider the ramifications of this statement. You need to know the universe is so vast, so great, that astronomers do not measure distances in miles. The numbers become too big. Instead, they measure in light years. You're probably familiar with this. The, amount, the distance traveled by a beam of light between one point and another. Do you know how long it takes the light to travel from the nearest star, not including our sun, of course, from the nearest star? It takes 4.2 light years, which means as you look up into the stars and you see that twinkly little star up there, the light that is hitting your eyeball began over four years ago. Yeah, it's just interesting to think about. Now, you need to also understand that light, light travels at 670 million miles an hour. 670 million miles an hour. And the nearest star is 4.2 light years away. So if my calculations are correct, and you better hope so, because I used to design airplanes, the ones that you fly. <laughs> my calculations are correct. The nearest star is 25 trillion miles away. Now, it's easy to get overwhelmed when the numbers get that big. It's like trying to think about the national debt. I mean, really, what does that even mean? So just to let you know, I'll give you an idea. If you took regular, regular pieces of paper and you stacked them one on top of the other, 25 trillion sheets of paper would go from the earth to the moon 10 times. Right? And the nearest star is 25 trillion miles away. Now, you've probably seen pictures of what astronomers believe the Milky Way galaxy looks like. With its trillions of stars, trillions of stars, and the nearest one is 25 trillion miles away. That's a guess, by the way. I didn't measure that. And on top of that, astronomers believe that the Milky Way is one of over a billion galaxies in the visible 
universe. And God's glory is greater than that? That all of this was set in place by a God? I mean, an appropriate response would be, are you kidding me? <laughs> right? Are you kidding me? Right? We rightfully sang a few moments ago, but with all this in mind, hear this again. Indescribable, uncontainable. You placed the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All powerful untamable, awestruck, we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are amazing, God. The first thing David calls us to do in this psalm is to admire and appreciate at the depths that come from this wonder. Admire and appreciate God for his greatness. God is great beyond our comprehension. I don't know about you, but it's, I spend time thinking about that, how vast the universe is. It doesn't take long before my insignificance comes rushing to the front of my mind. I remember being as young as seven years old when this was beginning to just rattle around in my own brain and in my own heart. And at the time, I lived in the middle of nowhere in a, in a farm in southeastern Minnesota. And I would, in the summertime, I would beg my parents that I could sleep outside. I love to be in my sleeping bag looking up and seeing that vast sky with stars that were unblemished by city lights, right? You've been out there and maybe you've seen that as well. Just how amazing, how many stars there are. But as I looked up there, I would just feel this chasm inside of me, this question, do I matter at all in the face of eternity? I think David felt something similar, maybe even as he was writing this psalm, because look, this, look where he goes next in verses 4 and 5. He said, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. David knew that humans hold a special place in creation, even though we are small and frail in the grand scheme of things. The poetic structure of this psalm places emphasis, emphasis, it's like a spotlight, on these two phrases, that you should think of them and that you should care for them. Those phrases are actually translated from two Hebrew words. The first word means a calling to mind or a dwelling upon. It's my, maybe like what you do when you think on friends or family members that live a long ways away, and so you bring them to mind and you dwell on them, and it's as if the distance between you shrinks as you think on them. Yeah, that's kind of what's going on there. The second word means a deep affection, like a mother with a newborn baby or a husband and wife on their wedding day. They have that kind of affection. So, so, so God's basically saying, or sorry, David is basically saying, God calls us to mind and dwells on us with that kind of deep affection. So despite the chasm between God's greatness and our insignificance, our smallness, he is mindful of us. And, and beyond merely keeping track of the 8 billion people on the planet, he knows you by name. He yearns for a relationship with you. You are important to him. 
Verse 5 tells us that we are created a little lower than God. We are crowned with glory and honor above all the other created things. The language of this verse mirrors what we read in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 clearly teach that human beings are not an afterthought. We're not an accident. We're not a, you know, we didn't just come out of collision of different forces over time. No, that we were created specifically and uniquely designed and set apart from the rest of creation for a distinctive relationship with our creator God. We are fashioned in his image, it says. So the second thing God call, that, that David calls us to do in this psalm is to admire and appreciate God for human uniqueness, for human uniqueness. So the key to hanging on to both human greatness and human insignificance is the fact that we are made in the image of God, that you, that me, that all, every human being reflects something of the glory of God. You reflect something of the glory of God that nobody else ever has or ever will. And so admiring and appreciating God, both for his greatness and for our uniqueness, can lead us to what we might call a humble confidence. A humble confidence. Humble because we know we're frail and small and meaningless in some respect in the grand scheme of the universe. And, and yet confident because we can know, again, that we bear something of God's glory that nobody else can or ever, nobody else will. This humble confidence then empowers us to embrace what God has called and created us to do. This is where David goes next in verse 6. He said, you gave them charge over everything you made, putting all things under their authority. The flocks, the herds, then all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, everything that swims the ocean currents. These three verses again reflect the creation account in Genesis and remind us, what we were created for. My friends, we were created to rule. God rules over all the creation, and yet he gave some of that authority to us. We're co-rulers. We're co-regents over creation. What an incredible joy and an amazing responsibility. It doesn't take long to understand the complexity of over 8 billion people cooperating in the care of creation as we are assigned. I don't know where you stand, or it doesn't even matter where you stand on the whole concept of, of global warming, of, of climate change, of human participation in that. All I know is that we need to be in the conversation with this lens, this theological lens of human beings created in the image of God and given authority over to care for and manage not our creation, but God's creation. Even if you find such global issues overwhelming, we can see our day-to-day -day lives through this lens. I remember a long time ago, a friend of mine helped make this really practical for me. Uh, one day, kind of casually speaking, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but he mentioned that he saw the mowing of his lawn and the trimming of his hedges as part of his co-rulership, you know, ruling over the little plot of creation that God gave him to manage. And I think that's really helpful to see it that way. You see, these verses remind us that our work matters to God, no matter what we're doing. Now, it's easy to think of some work, especially spiritual work, as more important than other work. But the Bible makes no distinction between sacred and secular. All work matters to God. Now, passages like this one help us understand that we worship God. We worship God when we live as image bearers. 
When we live as image bearers, reflecting something of the glory of God. And as we live into the vocation or the calling that he has given us to, to, to rule over whatever it is that he has given us to accomplish. Knowing this, we can join with David in the closing exclamation that mirrors the opening exclamation in this psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, your majestic name fills the earth. And that's Psalm 8. Well, almost all of Psalm 8. If you're paying attention, you may have noticed uh, that I skipped a verse along the way. Anybody notice that? Got one over here. Verse 2. Verse 2. And quite frankly, it's tempting to skip right over that because the sermon flows a lot better without it. Or that the psalm seems to flow a lot better without it. It kind of sticks out. Unless you see it through understanding this, this tension that David is working through between human smallness and God's greatness. And so Psalm 2, verse 2, becomes pregnant with meaning when we're wrestling with that. Here's what it has to say. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Now this becomes a powerful metaphor of God revealing his greatness through human smallness. After all, what could be smaller and weaker than children and infants? To think about it even more, as they talk about how you silence enemies, which requires strength, okay? How do children and infants have strength? They, they have strength when they call out to the one who loves them. To the one who will be strong for them, the one who cares for them, the ones who will fight for the one who will fight for them, right? That's how a child or an infant has strength. The same is true in, in this case. He's saying enemies si are silenced before them. Enemies of God, what they want to do is they want to do it all on their own. They don't want to call out to, to anybody for help. And they are silenced when small ones, when small ones, us, call out in hope and trust to our great God. Earlier, I posed a question in the context of my work at the Boeing Airplane Company. When I worked there, did I matter? I can tell you I mattered to Victoria uh, when I stood with her and cried with her when her mother died after a long bout with cancer. I can tell you I mattered to Chuck. Chuck was an interesting guy. He grew up Catholic, and he had given up on all that thoughts of God, and he was pursuing meaning through Buddhism. And I had a chance to share the gospel with him one day on a golf course. I can tell you, I mattered to Nancy. Nancy was all about climbing the corporate ladder. She was going to get meaning in life because she, she had her targets on the president's office. I mean, quite literally. I mean, that was like seven or eight layers, but she was going after it. But after a series, you know, series of conversations over years, and, and as I left the company and we were having conversations, she, she shared about how that's not long, no longer she's going to pursue that, that as far as meaning, and she was curious about who this God was. And I can tell you that though thousands of people could have done that job of integrating the simulation software for the 777 airplane development, a thousand people didn't. I did. God gave me the skills and the tools and the experience to do that job, to do it well. God worked, quite frankly, a minor miracle for me to get the job in the first place. That's another story for another time. And he gave me favor with my coworkers and my supervisors. Yeah. I had an interesting look into, a glimpse into the value that I had at Boeing when my coworkers surprised me with a gift at a going away lunch. <laughs> they, they, they give me this, this picture, I got, got it here. 
you can see that, it's actually, it's, a, it's the simulator cockpit. And then they had written little notes all over that. Little stories of fun we'd had both in work and out of work. Little insider jokes, things like that, right? Um, they had some things, they just, some kind words they had to say. Some well wishes as I launched off from there. This still hangs over my desk and I look at it almost every day. And it just reminds me of the story that has been part of mine that I got to experience it. That my life mattered at the Boeing Airplane Company. Even though I was one of over 300,000 employees, 25,000 engineers working on that airplane. The same is true for you. You are uniquely designed by God. Nobody else is you. Nobody else has been you. Nobody else ever will be you. You are designed to reflect something uniquely of God. And you are placed in this time, in this place, to share that with the world around you. To, to bring wherever God has you. You are needed and necessary there. So I invite you to live fully. <laughs> Don't you dare settle for mediocrity. Just passing your time. You were made for more. You were made for more. You know, as great as this psalm is, reading it by itself only paints part of the picture. To even be more amazed by this psalm, we, we should take a look at it through the lens of a couple of New Testament writers who used this psalm as part of their trying to sharing about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 2, we find a direct quote of Psalm 8 verses 4 through 6. The author of Hebrews, what, what he was doing was he was building an argument for who Jesus was. And, and he was using Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage to prove it. Well, in chapter 2, he was building an argument for why Jesus was God, the actual God of the universe, coming in human for, to, form to die for your sins and mine. Jesus' life, according to the author of Hebrews, was the greatest life ever lived. His death was the greatest death ever died. His resurrection made it possible for you and I to have a relationship with the creator of the universe. In other words, Jesus was and is the perfect expression of God's greatness. Yet, when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't seem to amount to much. The religious leaders of his day certainly didn't think much of him. He wasn't larger in life. He wasn't that grand king that they longed for. He was insignificant. One day he was teaching in the temple and uh, children were gathered around and they were saying, Hosanna to the son of David, right? Son of David, which was a key phrase for this Messiah character, this savior, this future king that was promised in all of the Old Testament. And the religious leaders of the day, they became indignant. They were angry about that. They say to Jesus, do you know what these children are saying? Matthew captured this. And it says, yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scripture? Love that. For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. He was quoting Psalm 8 too. Children could see Jesus' greatness because they didn't care about his insignificance. They saw the wonder of who he was. And they silenced the enemies of God through their praise. Just like Psalm 8 verse 2 said would happen. 
You see, in Jesus, this tension between human greatness and human insignificance reaches its zenith, reaches its climax. You see, you see the, the creator of the universe, the creator of the universe, remember how vast that is, right? Became a baby, born and placed in an animal food trough in a poor place, in a poor town in the middle of nowhere, in a nondescript part of the empire, the Roman Empire. Jesus, the one who spun galaxies without breaking a sweat, didn't have a home to sleep in or a bed to sleep on. Jesus, the perfect source of all wisdom and justice and love, died an unjust death for your sins and mine to pay the penalty. Yeah. At first glance, Jesus doesn't seem to matter. But look again. And God's greatness, that Jesus is a perfect expression of God's greatness. Would you pray with me? And may we not have too many words to fill this space. Because, God, you are great beyond our words, beyond our understanding. And yet you invite us into relationship. May we this morning, each one of us, admire and appreciate you for your greatness. And would we admire and appreciate you for our uniqueness. And would we find that tension in between those two things is filled with Jesus. Who paid the price for our sins. Who gives us a a path to eternal life and to know you as a creator God through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. May we put our hope and trust in that above all else. Praying, hoping, and believing in Jesus' name. Amen.